0: is actually quite fitting that that's the song that we um, finished today with because we are looking at a theme this year and it was really in looking in concert of what happened this last year and even some things that are happening this year and so when we were thinking about a theme um, us and the other uh, leaders of the church were thinking about a theme we really settled on still God Still, God in the midst of everything that happens, regardless of what happens, though things may change, though our realities may um, ebb and flow. There is one constant in our lives, and that constant is God, no matter what the circumstance is, no matter what the condition of the world may be. God is effectively still God. And while there are people who can unseat other people politically, there is no one who can dethrone the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And that is our God. And so, in the midst of everything that happens throughout the years, we should be reminded that He is still God. And so, in saying that and understanding that, the sermon today is still God, still holy. What we're going to do is um, over the next few weeks, however long it lasts, we're going to talk about attributes of God that are consistent, attributes of God that never change and never waver. And one of the um, attributes of God that I wanted to look at first was the very holiness of God. We are looking at the holiness of God now in a changing world and quite frankly, in a changing church it is not common for one to discuss what it means to talk about the holiness of God. In fact, back in the day, even some today, very few, but back in the day, only certain churches were holiness churches. Only those churches thought that they were doing what was actually demonstrating the holiness of God. Now, what we learn is that many of those churches looked at holiness more as a, an external attribute more so than anything that was going on in the heart. But holiness for God and for us is not about what happens on the outside. It's about what's happening on the inside. Now, the difference today is if if we categorize the 70s and 80s and early 90s um, with the holiness churches, I think Today's churches are probably defined by the high grace, high mercy, low justice, low judgment God, the God that doesn't punish sin, the God that allows you to do whatever you do. And that even when you sin, even when you do things that are an offense to God, there is nothing that can disrupt the relationship that you had when you prayed a prayer or walked down an aisle or got baptized. And so what happens is many people, because their comfort level with God is based not on God's ability to um, render judgments on our lives, but their comfort level with God is God's ability to let them skate scot-free from their sins. And so many churches have built, I mean, massive congregations on the basis of there is no problem with sin. God knows you will sin. He'll forgive you anyway. And so what happens is we lose any standard of righteousness that we have had and found in God. And where there is no standard of righteousness by which people are held accountable, then mercy means nothing. If there is never a time that God's going to render a judgment on our lives based on his standard of holiness and righteousness, based on the moral code and moral law of God, if there is no standard of holiness that we're going to be judged by, then what's the point of mercy? What's the point of grace? I don't need mercy and I don't need grace if there is no consequence for the thing which I'm doing, right? So what we have done in order to measure up to God is we've lowered the goal. We've lowered the standard by which God is set so that when we look at him, we don't see that much difference between he and ourselves. But the reality is, is that when we look up at the holiness of God, we should feel infinitely smaller. We should feel categorically insignificant when we see the holiness and the righteousness of God. So much so that the psalmist says when he looks at the stars and the handiwork of God that he says God has done with his fingertips. He does not say what a great man I am. He says, who am I that this God, this massive God is mindful of me? And many people are uncomfortable when we see the magnitude of our large God who is sovereign, who controls all, and who has a standard of righteousness by which we'll be judged. And so we can do one or two things. We can admit that I will never meet that standard and earnestly pursue him, repent and believe the gospel, or we can lower the standard so that everybody meets that standard. And so what we have here today is we're looking at, again, still looking at the Sermon on the Mount, but we're looking specifically at Jesus when he's preaching and he makes mention of the law and he's clarifying for us, regardless of what we may hear today, that he's not coming to abolish the law. He did not come, the word better is, to dismantle the law. And so the mistake that some people have made is, There are groups of people who have lowered that standard and they're what we call antinomian. They are they believe that there is no right that the law has to guard our lives. That's one group of people. But then there's the other group of people who think that Jesus came and raised the standard of the law. And he didn't do that either. Those are your legalists. What Jesus does when he comes and he carefully explains, he exacts what the law of God meant when it was given to man. He exacts how we were going to have any opportunity, any attempt at righteousness to keep that law and to be obedient to it. And so what we want to see today is through this sermon, through understanding that God is effectively still holy, that we do not measure up to the standard of God. We need to realize that. But that there is only one hope for us to measure up to that standard. And that hope is found in Jesus Christ. So that's what we're going to look at today. And I like what Jesus does in a world where everybody wants a new revelation. Where everybody wants to say something else. Paul called it fecal matter. When people want to add something new to the gospel, Jesus says something old. And I feel like if it's good enough for Jesus to reach back to what was old then it's good enough for me. I ain't got nothing new for you. All right. I ain't got no new revelation. God ain't speaking to me specially. What we have is written in the final revelation of who God is in the canonized books of the Bible. And that's what we're going to go with. So go with me, if you will, to Matthew, chapter five, verse 17. Matthew, chapter five, verse 17. This again is Jesus continuing his sermon on the mount as we have been going through um, these weeks. Whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you one more uh, time that we're able to share in the word. It is a privilege, God, um, that many churches over the, the course of the world and history have not been able to gather like we are. There are even today churches that are not gathering. So, God, we thank you for those who are online, for those who are in person, that you have given us an opportunity and the freedom and the liberty in a country that allows us, God, to share the truth of the gospel. But, Lord, as we share today, um, help us see that your standard of righteousness does not change. Your standard of holiness, your standard of living does not change. And that you are very Uh, perfect in how you have distributed the law to us and how you hold us accountable to it. So, God, we pray that you would give us clarity and understanding. It's in Jesus name we pray. Amen. So um, this very first verse is essentially the thesis of everything else that Jesus is going to say after this point. The very first thing he says is do not think. That I have come to dismantle, to destroy, to undo, to deconstruct the law or the prophets. Now, there are some people who are going to see this and make perfect sense out of this. They're going to understand this immediately. Yes, we know God did not come to destroy, dismantle or uh, disrupt what the law came to do. But there are other people who are going to struggle with what he meant. So let me put it in the terms that Jesus was using when he said it, and he's saying it really emphatically and we don't pick that up. But he says, don't you dare think for a second that I have come to undo or to destroy the law or the prophets. Now, why do you think people struggle with this in particular? I mean, quite honestly, looking at it, it seems quite plain, right? Jesus is saying that he didn't come to destroy the law. We should be able to grasp that clearly. But this is the problem. People have an insufficient understanding on what Jesus meant by the law here. Because there is sometimes this generic understanding of what God meant by the law. Now, what Jesus here is referring to is the Decalogue. He is referring to the Ten Commandments by which we were given to guide and guard our lives. He is not referring to the almost 600 other laws that the Jews came up with because they couldn't keep the Ten. He's referring to the original moral code that was given to Moses by which all of humanity should guide and guard our lives. Many people have a poor understanding of the relationship of New Testament Jesus plus Old Testament law. What causes this poor understanding, though? We need to wrestle with this. It starts off, I think, by people misreading and misunderstanding the writing of Paul. I think even misunderstanding and misinterpreting his writing in Romans. And so when they don't understand. What is being meant by the law. What is being meant by the, to destroy the law. They don't understand all these words that are being used. This is what many people think by the way. They think the law plus the Old Testament. Equals no mercy. And God's judgment. That's all they think happens in the Old Testament. But they think. Likewise, Jesus plus the New Testament equals free grace and no consequences for sin. That's what many people interpret the New Testament and Old Testament to be. So, how does that happen? I mentioned it's a misreading of Paul and Romans. Let me show you why. Two places in Scripture I think people misinterpret what he's saying Romans 8 1 through 4, to begin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law. And that's what they hear. But that's not what it says. From the law of sin and death for God has done what the law weakened by flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So there's a misinterpretation of that text and there's a misinterpretation of Romans 7 and 12. So the law is holy. And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So in the first verse, you have some people who think that Paul is saying that the law is gone and we no longer live by any standard of God's moral code or moral law. And then you have this other verse where people think all we do is live by the moral code and law of God. And that's how we get righteousness through our obedience. People assume improperly that Paul is saying that because of Jesus, we are freed. But what most people see, and it is their mistake, is they see that he is saying free from the law. When they say it, they see it. They think that he's saying Jesus has freed us from the law. But that's not actually what it says. The whole thing says that Jesus has freed us from the law of sin and death. That is the freedom that we have gained. That for those of us who believe sin no longer brings death to us because all of our sins have been pardoned by the perpetuation, the self-sacrificing death of Jesus Christ. So for us, he died for the sins that we were supposed to die for. Jesus Christ has freed us from that law that for us, sin means death. Now, that does not mean universally that every person that lives is freed from that law. Only those of us who are born again, who walk, he says it right here, not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Only those of us who do so have been freed From that law, which is the law that sin brings death. That's it. That's what it really says. The moral law of God, which we have just said, is summarized for us in the Decalogue, in the Ten Commandments, was impossible for us to meet. It was a standard that we absolutely could not meet. It is a standard that we still cannot meet. What was the requirement that God had of the law? What is the requirement that God has of the law? Perfect obedience. God wants, expects out of us perfect obedience to his law. And let me tell you this. Every single day, every one of us has failed to meet the standard of that law in thought in word, and in deed, every single day. And in that time, prior to the coming of Jesus Christ, there is a simple equation. Sin brought about in us death. Eternal separation from God. And the very nature of God is reflected in the Ten Commandments. God's standard of holiness is outlined for us in Deuteronomy and Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy quite often because even they missed it. Which is your only hope for keeping the law of God is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and it should produce in you a love for your neighbor as you love yourself. This isn't new. This is what has always been. So while people think that Jesus may have lowered the standard of righteousness, he has actually perfectly exacted what is required of us. So what law have we been freed from? Not God's moral law. Not the moral code of God, which the very first commandment says what? Don't have any other gods before me. You think God is going to free us from that? Of course not. We have been freed only through Jesus Christ from the law of sin and death. Now, for some people, this may sound like once saved, always saved, do whatever you want, but it's actually not. It's saying that Is not saying that all are free, but it's saying that those who believe have been free. God has done, Paul says, what the law. But let's be clear whose fault it is. Not the law's fault. He says God has done what the law weakened by flesh could not do. What could the law not do? It could not save. It could not declare us righteous. The law could not be the substitutionary atonement for our sins. The law could not condemn sin in our flesh. All of that Jesus did. Jesus saved us from the penalty of our sins. He saved us from ultimate death in separation from God so that the holy and righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. That's what Jesus did. Let's work through this. What was the righteous requirement of the law? What did the law require of us? God, as we said, required perfect obedience. There are no ifs, there are no ands, there are no buts about this. And for many people, this is where their hang up is. They see what was required of of us in the Old Testament, right? They look at the Old Testament and they see the law because they don't understand that the work of of Jesus Christ has freed us from sin and death, what people say is that there must be two distinct gods. All right. There must be the God who's at work in the Old Testament, the God who is judgmental, the God who is harsh, the God who is not merciful, the God who was killing people on the spot. And then there's Jesus who doesn't do any of that. Who allows us the freedom and the grace to sin as we please. And if we made that profession when we were five and didn't know what we meant, it doesn't matter because that still means that we're saved. But that's not the case. God in the Old Testament and the New Testament has required the same thing of us because he's the same God. He has required of us perfect obedience. Now, this is the thing. The law did nothing in order for us to be able to be obedient to it. So how could God expect us to be perfectly obedient to his law, but the law not provide the means to even make obedience possible? If that is the case, is there injustice with God? So what does God do in order to make obedience possible? He gives us Jesus. He gives us God incarnate and he lives a perfectly righteous, sinless life. He never said a sinful word, nor did he even think a sinful thought. So God does something amazing here. He takes his righteousness. He takes his obedience and he takes it and he puts that on our backs. The righteousness and the obedience and the holiness of Jesus Christ, he takes that and those of us who believe, he places that on our backs. Boy, what he does with Jesus is even more amazing. He took our sin, he took our offenses, he took our injustices. Not only does he put a cross on the back of Jesus, he then puts the back of Jesus on a cross and he nails all of our sins there with it. He does this perfectly even exchange of our our righteousness, which there was none. And he gives us the righteousness of Jesus. And the sin of Jesus, which there was none, he gives him ours. He does this perfectly even exchange. So now that the obedience and righteousness to the law of Jesus Christ has been imputed to us. It has been credited to us as if we lived the life that he lived. So this is what Jesus means when he says that he did not come to abolish the law or to dismantle it, but he came to fulfill it. People say that they do not need God's law or the Ten Commandments. But I want you to understand this. Let me tell you why we need God's law. Let me tell you why we need the Ten Commandments. If you dismiss the law of God, then you aren't just dismissing the law. You're also dismissing the fact that Jesus fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law. Because if you say that the law has no meaning, that the Ten Commandments have no meaning to me, then that also means that what Jesus had to do means nothing to you as well. Jesus came to perfectly obey the law and give us that righteousness. So if you say that has no meaning to me, because the law has no meaning to me, and I feel like I should be free from the law, and that's fine. If you want to be free from the moral code of God, that also means you have to be free from the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which gave you the only opportunity you had to perfectly obey the law in the first place. To deny the righteousness of Jesus is to deny salvation itself. Believe it or not, but there are people even today who do their best to avoid the Old Testament like a plague. Because they look at it because they cannot rationalize how this is the same God. They don't see the big picture that he's painting for us. And so what they do is they disregard the Old Testament. Now, you may think I may just be making that up, but there is a very prominent pastor who passes in Atlanta who has written a book. His father also passes a very large church. And he wrote a book. And in that book, he made these statements regarding the Old Testament. These are direct quotes. The problem with the modern church is our incessant habit of reaching back into the Old Covenant Concepts, teachings, sayings, and narratives. He then says, the Ten Commandments have no authority over you. None. To be clear, thou shalt not obey the Ten Commandments. This is from his actual book. He's a very prominent pastor in Atlanta with a very prominent father who's much more sound than he is. What he is effectively saying is that when I look in the Old Testament, I see no value. I see no truth. I see no hope for me who is living in the midst of the New Testament church. But what is specifically condemning for him is that we must stop reaching back to the old covenant concepts, teachings, sayings and the narratives. Let me tell you what the problem with that is, though. The problem with him saying that is that if you don't understand that what God was doing in the Old Testament, even from Genesis, when he's about to sacrifice his son and he provides a lamb or when Jesus appears to Jacob or when he appears to Joshua near Jericho, is that he was painting for us the perfect picture of Jesus that was to come. But more specifically, if there is no Old Testament, there is no law, but there is also no prophets. And it was the prophets who told us who Jesus would be and what he would do. If there's no Old Testament sayings, covenants and narratives, then we have no hope and no chance in the present day. And that's what this band believes. That there are these two separate parts of who God was and what God was doing and that there is no merging of the two. And if that's the case, if we just totally nullify what the Old Testament is, then we must also nullify who Jesus Christ is. We have to. Because how do I know that Jesus is even Jesus if I can't go back and look at the Old Testament and see when Isaiah is prophesying of who this man would be, that he would take the the punishment for my sins, that he would be led like a sheep to the slaughter, like a lamb. How could I know that Jesus would be that perpetuation? I wouldn't. So I want to make this. As plain as possible, Paul made it clear that no one was made righteous through their obedience to the law. And that even the father of faith, Abraham, was made righteous through faith and not through the law. How do we know that? It wasn't no law when Abraham was made righteous, when he was declared righteous. There was no law. So when he was declared righteous, the Bible says that it was counted to him as righteousness because he believed what God has said. Paul even goes even further because there were people who were coming back who were reaching and relying too much on the Old Testament and misinterpreting it. And they say, well, clearly, in order to be righteous, you must be circumcised. And Paul says, "Ah, ah, ah. was Abraham declared righteous before or after he was circumcised? He was declared righteous before he was circumcised. Therefore, there was nothing that Abraham did in order to receive the righteousness of God. And even the belief that he had was not through his own doing, but it was through God who made belief possible. Now, I don't know this. I don't have the Old Testament. I don't know this if I can't look back and understand that the picture of salvation that God was painting then is the exact same way we are saved today, which is through belief. The only difference for us is belief in the resurrection, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Look at what Galatians 324 says, and this is why Jesus did not come to abolish the law. So then, Galatians 3, 24, so then the law was our guardian. The law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith, in order that we might be declared righteous by faith. God gave us the law not as a means of condemnation, but as a means to guard and to guide us so that Jesus will become the standard and the law wouldn't be the standard. Jesus was the very embodiment and the complete fulfillment of what the law is. Romans 10 4 says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. God's expectation of the law was completed in the life and in the work of Jesus Christ. So God's expectation has not changed for us because of Jesus. It has not been lowered. It has not been raised. He doesn't expect any more or less of us today than he ever did. The expectation has always been perfect obedience. The difference now, however, is that through Jesus' perfect obedience, obedience for us is accessible. Not because of our righteousness, but because of his. Righteousness for us is not accessible through any works or deeds, but it has been given to us through the works and deeds of Jesus Christ. Jesus then says that until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. An iota and a dot in the language was the smallest character. The reason he is using this as an example is because that is the nature of who so many of us are. We give our own little measurements to which sins and which laws we view as weightier. Oh, I can obey this one, but I disregard this one. I don't view this one as as important. Not only do we do that with the law of God, but we do that even with the laws of our own country. I mean, we speed, I speed. But we're not murdering, which is against the law as well. And so when you use unrighteousness, the worst possible unrighteousness, as the standard. Well, I don't murder people, okay? So if I speed, I really should get a pass because there are other people out there murdering people. So if I'm committing this little law, breaking this little law, then I'm fine. And we do the same thing with our own lives, with sin. Well, I may be coveting, but I ain't coveting somebody else's spouse, So, I mean, I should get some sort of pass, but that's not how God views it. And more importantly, that's not even how Jesus views it. And we're going to look at that next week when we understand that righteousness comes not from what we cannot do externally, but when we fully accept what Jesus has done internally. But he says this and he makes this clear, and I love this, that not one of us will get away With relaxing any of these laws in our lives. Not one law of God will be passed by or go unfulfilled. Now this is Jesus who is saying this. The law will be fulfilled and it is being fulfilled through me. Look at what James 2 and 10 says. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point. Has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. James makes it clear here that those who see the law itself as their source of righteousness then whenever they disregard the law, they are not only breaking the one law, but they are breaking the entirety of the law. Why? God's law is not just do not do these things, but it is that doing these things, being angry enough to murder, lusting enough to commit adultery, are all attempts by man to supplant God in our lives. Which means, even if you do those things, you're violating the first commandment. But he's also making it clear that we should strive to be obedient to God's law, but not just for obedience sake. The law of liberty, because through Jesus we have been freed from the law of sin and death. Then the most reasonable response to that is an obedience to him feeling that we are debtors because of his grace. Now. We are not debtors to his grace in a means to try to pay him back. We can't pay him back. But we are debtors seeing that what God has done for us through Jesus Christ, it makes us feel, God, I owe you everything. Every part of who I am, because I know I can't pay you back. I give you all of my life, which is why Paul says, I beseech you to present your bodies as living sacrifices. Being thrown into an altar, being burned before God, offered as a sacrifice for God, which is the most rational thing you can do in response to what he has done because Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice. So how do I respond to God's grace? I give him all of me. Every single component of who I am, of every single day, by the end of each day, I should feel poured out because I have served God so fervently that day. That is how we respond. Is that we know that any obedience we have would not give us any merit or standing with God, but I do dearly love God. And I want to be obedient to him. I don't want to violate him. I don't want to anger him. I don't want to offend him. But because of the disregard of God's moral law, in our world, this is the result. People have no definite source of truth. That sets the stage, and I think, The precedence for our world, which now says there are no absolutes. You can absolutely feel one way and though you were born and made another way, feel a different way. No more absolutes. Nothing's definitive. There is no absolute truth. You can absolutely take what is clearly a lie and be angry enough because you don't know what the source of truth is and do all kind of atrocities because of a man's a lie. Because you have no definite source of truth by which you are rooted. Our world says that it alone has the authority and the autonomy to define what is now truth. I can set my own standard of righteousness, and then I can define which things in my own life are right and wrong and how a person can get righteous. And when you have people who are all trying to define the truth, all trying to create new measurements for the truth, you you quickly realize that there won't be any truth that's found. It absolutely rips apart the fabric of society. And if you look out in our world, if you look out in our country, you are witnessing a world that has no truth. You are looking at a world that cannot look at a moral source of truth and then measure their lives up against it. But this is the irony, right? Me and Tadrick were talking about this the other day. The irony is this. I'm telling you that truth is relative and that you can define your truth as, as you define it. There are no moral absolutes. And if I ask you, do you absolutely believe that? You would say yes. That's a moral absolute. You don't even believe your own stuff because it doesn't even work out for you to believe that there were no moral absolutes. There's a moral absolute. And what you realize that a source, a a, a world that has no source of truth makes no sense out of anything it says. There are those who look at the moral law of God and think, "Tuh, I do all of that. And then some. But then there are other people who look at God's moral law and say, I can't keep that law at all. And they totally disregard it. In both cases, they are completely wrong for the same reason. They are taking the law of God, just the law, and it becomes the measuring stick for righteousness. Here's our final scripture. Let's look at Galatians 3 and 10. For all shall live by them. There's a group of people out there now, I've mentioned them before, I mentioned them one more time, the Hebrew Israelites, which are a growing group, who believe that they can achieve perfect obedience to the law. But the problem with them is that their obedience does not stop with the ten laws that we were given in the Decalogue, but it's also the other hundreds of laws, none of which they can keep. And Paul makes it clear, if you are a debtor to one law, you are a debtor to the whole thing. And this shows us that if our measuring stick is the law, then we have no hope. We have no chance of righteousness for no one has been made righteous because of their obedience to the law. So that means that when we are looking at Jesus and his righteousness, not only will we see that he is our measuring stick. We will also realize that we fall incredibly short of him. But we also know that the only hope we have of measuring up to God and measuring up to the standard that he has set is that because we acknowledge that Jesus took our place on the cross. And not just acknowledge it, but fully grasp that because of my filthiness, because of my wickedness, because of how sinful I am, I'm supposed to be on that cross. I'm supposed to have the wrath of God, which is being stored up in an infinite storehouse, poured out on me for all of eternity. That I'm not a decent person. I'm not good. I'm not holy. I'm not righteous. I'm filthy before the eyes of God. As long as Jesus Christ is the standard. I completely fall and fail. But that's also the thing looking up at Jesus and realizing I have no chance apart from that man on that cross of ever being righteous. That that's my only chance for salvation. That I must look to him and be saved. And then when he saves me, he will produce in me an obedience to his law that I can never produce in myself. That I will never have to face the wrath and the penalty of my sins because Jesus Christ on the cross took my sins away. That is what it means to be free from the law of sin and death. And so when God says, when Jesus says in John 8, And those who have been free are free indeed. Are you free? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the time and the word we've shared today. God, we thank you that you have given us the law, that you have given us a standard, that you've given us a moral code, a standard of holiness and righteousness by which we are being judged. God, we are grateful for that. But, God, we also acknowledge that we have no chance of obeying that law without you. We have no chance of obedience, God, without you. We have no hope without you, God. So, Lord, we ask you for those of us who don't know, who don't see, who don't understand what the gospel really means, that you will reveal to us our own sinfulness. And that you will also show us that any obedience, any righteousness we have will not come, God, through our own flesh. But it comes through the work and the life of Jesus Christ. God, you've given us freedom. You've given us hope. And you've made us at peace with you in a way that we could not do for ourselves. God, nothing more than anything that you would realize, help us realize that we have peace and freedom and liberty in you and you alone. And that you are still God and you are still holy. And that will never change. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.